Yes, Senator Whitehouse. And Senator Hassan and I sent a letter to um, the Department of Justice asking about why the uh, case against Purdue Pharma that was being proposed as a federal criminal indictment uh, out of the Western District of Virginia, once it got to the political side of the Department of Justice, suddenly got turned into a misdemeanor prosecution for a fine that in the context of this litigation is not very significant and that operated not against Purdue but against a holding company so that Purdue could continue to do business. So I don't have a lot of specifics to share with you, but I can tell you that the department is very actively um, looking into nationwide manufacturer and distributors um, of opioids. Um, we, we recognize um, the role that many of those companies played, including the executives in those companies, and in contributing to the opioid crisis. Between the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice bringing them together to get an agreement that we have struck the right balance between control and access, and that's what we've what we've presented to the committee. Welcome to another episode of Outside Counsel. In this episode, we're gonna tell the Norco story, an absolutely true history that you probably have never heard before. And after that, we're going to explore what are the legal dimensions of these historical facts, especially as they continue to affect people today. I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. One of the prescription opioid manufacturers who began early on aggressively promoting opioids to primary care physicians, family medicine doctors, and podiatrists, and dentists, and pharmacies, and their staffs was the Watson Pharma Incorporated Company. In the late 1990s, Watson Pharma was a large manufacturer of generic prescription drugs including a broad spectrum of generic opioid drugs. Now, unlike branded patented prescription drugs, it is usually not worth the spend for a company to aggressively promote generic drugs. And that's because with the lack of a patent associated with the drug, generic drugs can be sold by many companies. That marketplace competition drives the price down for consumers, which drives down the profit margin for the manufacturer in the sale of the drug. Now, as a generic opioid manufacturer, this company, Watson Pharma, decided in the late 1990s that it wanted to turbocharge its opioid sales, specifically by acquiring a product with a patent a product called Norco, which contained an opioid, hydrocodone, and a non-opioid pain reliever, acetaminophen, the same ingredient you find in Tylenol. And they decided that holding this patent, they would aggressively promote Norco, and it would accomplish two things. One, they'd make a bunch of money convincing healthcare providers to prescribe this drug, which would have a higher profit margin because you can sell a higher price if you are the exclusive manufacturer of the drug, which was the case with Norco at that time. And also it would turbocharge ultimately the sales of their generic 
hydrocodone, acetaminophen drugs, because the narrative that they attached to their sales representatives about why this was the drug for doctors to prescribe for patients complaining of moderate pain would stick to their generic drugs as well. So that was the plan. And in order to execute that plan, they exploited certain market factors that were absolutely true. And they made a series of false and misleading claims. Let's start first with what's true. Norco had a sales advantage for Watson Pharma compared to other opioid manufacturers who sold their opioids. What was the difference between the two? Well, most opioids under the Controlled Substances Act, a federal law passed in 1970, are class two opioids. That means they are highly susceptible to dependence and abuse, and that's why they are highly controlled. A class two opioid then and now could only be prescribed by a licensed healthcare provider with a written prescription based on an examination of the patient. The patient, after receiving the prescription from their doctor, would have to go to a pharmacy and present a written prescription in order to receive the opioid from the pharmacy. There were also other types of greater scrutiny on class two opioids by federal law and many states laws than on opioids that had lower classifications. Norco was a class three opioid instead of class two. Not because hydrocodone is any less addictive than a class two opioid, but because it contained acetaminophen, which is not an opioid. Now, class two opioids include oxycodone, oxymorphone, morphine, fentanyl, hydromorphone. And hydrocodone is just as addictive as any of those drugs. Always has been. But when contained in a drug that also includes acetaminophen, it was at that time a class three drug and remained so rather controversially until the year 2014, when drugs like Norco were ultimately reclassified as class two. Well, it is an absolute fact that back then, class three opioids could be prescribed by telephone. A patient did not have to receive a written prescription from a doctor. A doctor or even a member of his or her staff could simply call a pharmacy and say, patient John Doe is a patient of mine and I'm calling in a prescription for Norco. I want them to receive a 90 day supply. Well, you can imagine that even if that's more convenient for the doctor, that made Norco a drug which was ripe for abuse. Three companies that control 85% of all U.S. pharmaceutical distribution, quote, knew or should have known that hundreds of millions of pills were ending up on the black market. In some cases, distributors continued to send pills even after they were alerted to suspicious pain clinics or pharmacies by the DEA and their own employees. At the same time, the CEOs of the three major distributors have collected compensation worth more than $450 million just since 
2012. People could call the pharmacy and pretend to be a doctor prescribing Norco for an actual pain patient when none of those claims were true. It's not as though pharmacists at that time had voice recognition software and could determine whether or not these claims were true. And as a result, there was an enormous amount of abuse associated with telephone prescribing. And that was true even then and very easy to see or foresee. But nonetheless, Watson very aggressively promoted Norco as easier for you, Dr. So-and-so, to prescribe for your patients because you can simply pick up the telephone or have a staff member do it and dial it in. As I say, while aggressive, that particular claim was true. However, as I said, Watson also aggressively promoted Norco with messages that were untrue. Some were unproven, some were patently untrue. And this is where this history gets really creepy because Watson Pharma deceived its own sales force, literally trained its sales force who were typically college kids, just out of college. This is their first job or their second job. And they were given a company car and a healthy salary and a bonus system, which was based on how many Norcos they were able to convince doctors to prescribe. And before they set them out into the world to promote Norco, they taught them things like this. Number one, opioids are not addictive. That's untrue. Doctors who fear prescribing opioids to their patients because they're afraid of addicting them, they're ignorant or they simply rely on unsound science. We now know that opioids are not addictive. They also taught their sales force, even if some opioids are addictive, not hydrocodone. Hydrocodone is not addictive. And even if it's a little addictive, it's substantially less addictive and prone to abuse than any other opioid. Now, as we've discussed in other episodes, Watson was not alone in that era of the 90s and the 2000s in promoting their opioid is less addictive than others. Lots of opioid manufacturers did it, and that's part of the problem. Purdue Pharma was a leader in promoting OxyContin as less addictive than it really was. And of course, the company got convicted of a felony that actually pled to it in 2007 over that very same false claim. But it is certainly true that Watson Pharma was not the only opioid manufacturer who taught its sale force to believe that the opioid that they were promoting to doctors was less addictive, even though it was never true. There was never any basis to claim it was true. It was just a tactical ploy. Worse, Watson taught its sales force to believe that a doctor not prescribing opioids like Norco to patients did more harm to the patient and to society than prescribing Norco ubiquitously for moderate pain in 90-day supplies. That we were insensitive as a, a medical care community if we were just leaving people in pain and doctors were not honoring their Hippocratic oath to do no harm and 
provide compassionate care and a whole bunch of nonsense, but that's what they taught their sales representatives to believe literally end quote in their sales manual so that they will take that ammunition of information out into the field to promote Norco to doctors and dentists. Think of this. Watson was not alone in that claim either. Lots of drug companies who manufactured opioids promoted this opioid phobia thesis, that the fear of prescribing opioids is unfounded and that more harm is done to patients and to society than giving into it. That doesn't make it right, it makes it wrong. But Watson was not unique in making that claim. However, Watson promoted Norco with a false and misleading claim that was all its own. They called it the Norco advantage. Norco containing hydrocodone and acetaminophen was not unique in the marketplace. There were other company drugs that made the same combination. There was a drug called Vicodin that also contained those two ingredients. There was a drug called Lortab that also contained those two ingredients. But Norco contained less acetaminophen than Lortab and Vicodin. Watson developed a promotional campaign that it taught its sales force to aggressively describe, promote, really emphasize with doctors and dentists called the Norco Advantage. And here was the thesis that because Norco contained less acetaminophen than other drugs, and because acetaminophen can be toxic to the liver in higher dosages, Norco was actually safer for patients than other opioids because containing less acetaminophen, it was safer for the liver. And so the real crux of the Norco campaign that distinguished it from the promotional campaigns of other opioids was the claim that Norco was the safe for the liver opioid. That if doctors prescribe Norco over Lortab or Vicodin or other opioids that contain acetaminophen, they're providing better care and a better drug because they're taking better care of their patient's liver. There was another theme a corollary, if you will, that Watson aggressively promoted with this idea, and it was this. Norco, when compared to other opioids, provided more opioid bang for the buck. That Norco 10 milligram hydrocodone, 325 milligram acetaminophen, provided the most hydrocodone that could be in an opioid, and comparatively speaking, the lowest acetaminophen. And so the promotion was, you doctor or you dentist should be prescribing Norco to your patients instead of Lortab or Vicodin, because you can put more hydrocodone into your patient's body over the course of a day without pickling their liver. So it's very important to understand this because in the litigation that has resulted about the promotion of Norco, the company that now holds the liabilities for this company, a company called Allergan Finance LLC, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a bit, says, well, hey, 
I mean, you're just substituting one opioid for another. What's the big deal? Well, number one, you're aggressively promoting an opioid as safe and effective for moderate pain and to be used perpetually. And that creates a terrible oversupply and it's not medically necessary and it addicts people and it causes overdoses and it's horrible. But beyond that, the result of prescribing Norco at a maximum daily dose results in more hydrocodone prescribing than in competitive drugs that contain hydrocodone and acetaminophen. And in fact, that's the point you were trying to exploit. So it wasn't a one-to-one -one switch. It resulted in a higher dose of hydrocodone in people who received a maximum daily dose of Norco. Now, consider this. Watson was so aggressive in its promotion of Norco and its claim about the dangers of acetaminophen as opposed to hydrocodone, which it claimed was non-addictive, that in its written promotional materials, it literally advised physicians that they should consider lesser dosages of Norco for their patients who are alcoholics. Not no dosage, just less. Not because of the high dose opioid that's in the drug, but because of the possibility that their livers were compromised by alcoholism and acetaminophen would hurt their liver even more. That's literally like taking 32 ounces of whiskey, putting ice cubes in the glass and saying, you know, before you drink this, be careful about that ice. Okay, it's not the acetaminophen that's the problem. It's the high dose of opioid, which is addictive and can cause overdoses. The FDA was appalled by this claim that Norco was safer for the liver because the only way you can make that claim lawfully as a drug company is if you conduct studies which show it to be true that Norco is actually safer for the liver than competitive drugs that contain hydrocodone or acetaminophen. And Watson didn't have reliable studies to that effect. They just started making the claim. Well, in 2000, the FDA sent a stern warning letter to Watson saying, your claim that Norco is a superior drug because it's safer for the liver is false and misleading because it is unsupported by reliable scientific data. Well, Watson took that information and either refused or at least failed to inform at least some of its sales force that the core claim about Norco was one that the FDA had determined was false and misleading. The FDA told him, stop making that claim and don't hand out any written promotional materials that make it either. Well, some of the sales representatives didn't get that information from their employer and they went right on just making the same false and misleading claims, both in what they told physicians and in the written promotional materials they showed them. Now, to be sure, the Norco Advantage sales promotion, albeit false and misleading, was highly successful. Where are we now? Well, I mentioned there's this company, Allergan Finance LLC. Because of a series of corporate transactions, they hold the liabilities, if any, for this promotional campaign. 
And they have been sued in various cases around the country because of Norco and because of a promotional campaign involving another opioid drug called Cadian. Well, in the Dallas County, Texas case, which uh, is set for trial in July 2022, this issue of what are the merits and repercussions of the Norco promotional campaign are front and center. A jury will decide that, and I will try that case if it does not otherwise resolve. That leads us to the next question. Is this the way these issues should be managed? Should the civil justice system be the mechanism by which these companies are held financially accountable so that money can be put back into the communities where it has been expended to deal with the health problems and the crime associated with drugs like Norca? Now, I believe the answer is yes, not as an exclusive remedy. But I'll, let me give you an example. In the state of Texas, many counties and cities and hospital districts have pursued claims against companies like Allergan Finance, they're not the only one, but claims against opioid manufacturers like them, wholesale distributors, those are the companies that ship and sell the opioids, you know, from opioid manufacturers to pharmacies. And they're sued for what is alleged to be their false and misleading promotion of these drugs and their unchecked distribution violation of their duties. Retail pharmacies have been sued for the same. That is unchecked dispensing of the drugs in violation of their legal duties. Well, by the time this podcast is heard, $1.7 billion from these companies will have been agreed as appropriate for settlement to be put back into these communities and to the state of Texas to deal with this rash of opioid addiction and opioid-related crime with which we now deal. Now, opinions may vary about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Number one, if these companies were not concerned about their liability risk, in other words, that a jury would find that they engaged in misconduct and caused substantial harm for which they would be held financially accountable, they wouldn't settle. That's not the same thing as admitting fault, but certainly if they did not perceive there was real risk here, they wouldn't settle. Number two, $1.75 billion is a lot of money that can do a lot of good for a very desperate problem that really needs it. Where else is the money going to come from? You're going to get it out of taxpayers? They didn't make the problem, right? All this discussion about how federal grant money, state grant money should handle it. Who are you talking about? You're talking about taxpayers. Why should they pay for the problem they're suffering from and didn't make themselves? So the civil justice system is actually an appropriate and efficient means of putting monies into the communities to fix these harms, which were caused by industry, a particular industry, based on conduct they engaged in for profit. 
So I think it's entirely appropriate. And if they disagree, they can try their lawsuit. And if they can get a jury to agree with them, well, then that'll be that. The next question is, all right, even if we decide that the civil justice system is not the best means of uh, putting resources back into the community that are badly needed to deal with the opioid epidemic, I ask this question, what's a better one? I mean, can you, you're just going to let people keep dying? You're going to just let crime continue over the diversion of these drugs without the resources to deal with it? We're just going to accept almost like we do school shootings that, well, that's just how life is in America. That's unacceptable. We can do something about this. We understand what the best means are for reducing harm from opioids, but it takes money to do it have to do what they did in the tobacco with, 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 with smoking. We need to change how America thinks about this. We need to start on a very small level, but we need to work everywhere. And, you know, it's education, it's treatment, but it's a lot of law enforcement because, again, if you don't have a big push for law enforcement on this, then you don't have people recognizing whether they're doing it for a good reason or not that this is the wrong thing. Yeah. And at least unlike guns, there's not some argument about constitutionality and the right to possess them. Nobody has the right to possess prescription opioids in undue supply. That's not the same thing as saying they should be banned. Informed people don't make the argument that opioids should be banned. They should simply be prescribed for the very narrow purposes in highly controlled, medically monitored settings in which they're appropriate, which changed only as a result of a very aggressive and expanded false and misleading uh, marketing campaign by industry for the purpose of expanding opioid prescribing. The next question is, okay, should there be criminal liability? I mean, gee, Jeffrey, if in fact these companies engaged in deliberate misinformation to sell addictive and abusive drugs, should they be held criminally responsible? That's actually a very nuanced question with not necessarily one answer. Sometimes it depends exactly on the facts and not themes or theories or worldview, right? Just like many doctors overprescribed opioids but without a criminal motive, some were running pill mills and had a criminal motive. Some opioid manufacturers sold too many opioids, but did not false and misleadingly promote them. And there's a difference between those two things. And the difference is, is that opioid manufacturers, just like any DEA registrant, have a responsibility to maintain effective systems of control against diversion. We talked about that in previous episodes. And very few of them actually did it. Some of them did it deliberately. Some of them absolutely deliberately turned a blind eye to their anti-diversion responsibilities because they wanted to keep the gravy train. Others just were negligent and negligent conduct and criminal conduct are not the same thing. So in the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy, this question is front and center. Should the Sacklers be held criminally responsible and not just civilly, financially liable. And the way in which that presented itself was 
that in the plan of reorganization, where the debtor, Purdue Pharma, was trying to put together a plan of financial reorganization in the bankruptcy court and get their creditors to agree to that plan, which included governmental plaintiffs, lawyers who represent children suffering from neonatal abstinence syndrome. They were born dependent on Oxycontin because their mothers were addicted. And people who became addicted to Oxycontin and wanted to pursue legal claims, putting all those factions together of creditors, people who had claims against the debtor company, Purdue Pharma, many of them had also had sued the Sacklers personally, because remember, that company was privately held. The Sacklers owned that company, it was not publicly traded. The Sacklers, even though they didn't file for bankruptcy themselves, were offering to put billions of dollars into a trust which the reorganized company would represent. In other words, the reorganized company would exist only for the purpose of paying claimants, producing drugs that help treat opioid addiction like medication-assisted treatment drugs like Suboxone, methadone, drugs of that chemical nature, even Oxycontin to a limited degree. The question was, should we, the creditors, should the Department of Justice, should we agree to release, functionally, criminal liability against the Sacklers? Well, their answer is, if you want $4 billion out of us, you, you're going to need to do that. We're not going to let you prosecute as criminally and pay you $4 billion. That's a very complicated question. And there were many states who took the position, yes, we'll take that devil's bargain. We think it's good for society. It's unfortunate, but it's good for society. And there were certain states who said, no, we don't like it. But they agreed to it too once the Sacklers agreed to put in more money. So what happened after that was the bankruptcy judge, Judge Drain, approved a plan based on an agreement of the debtor and, you know, a majority of these creditors. And then the reviewing court flipped it, reversed the order that had permitted the plan to go through, saying that, it violated bankruptcy law, that you could not, over the objection of some creditors, and there were some, release claims against an entity or a person who's not actually in bankruptcy. Remember, the Sacklers themselves did not file for bankruptcy, just the corporate entity, Purdue Pharma did. And so what that court said is, hey, we could deal with whether the Sacklers can make a deal to avoid future liability if they file for bankruptcy or if this is unanimously approved, but you don't have either. Now what? Now what? Well, that depends on how that plays out. But what it doesn't resolve is this fundamental question. If a 
person is out on the street selling heroin or cocaine to people, of course, those drugs are illegal. They're illegal because they're addictive and they cause overdoses and they're so prone to abuse. Well, of course, they should be criminally prosecuted. What if a drug company is selling medical grade heroin, prescription opioids? I mean, remember, it's the same base morphine molecule, whether you're talking about oxycodone and heroin, they're both opiates and they're both derived from the same molecule. They're not distinguishable chemically and they're not distinguishable in the human brain in terms of what they do. If a drug company is manufacturing and selling an oxycodone drug or a similar opioid, knowing that it is addicting people, knowing that people are dying of overdoses, making false and misleading claims that the drug is not addictive, is that better than a street dealer? Just because the FDA approved the drug for some use? Right. I mean, is that really the distinction? Well, heroin's not actually approved for anything and this drug is. And so the intentionality and deception associated with your conduct doesn't give rise to criminal liability because somehow you have this shield, this veil of legality. That's a very complicated question. Now, what I always say is that's fact specific. What did they actually do? Isn't it interesting that Purdue pled to a felony in 2007 and pled to another felony later, but none of the individuals who were running the company have been criminally prosecuted. How about that duality? The company is liable criminally, but no one within it is because the company doesn't engage in any conduct, but for the direction of the people who run it. Companies don't have states of mind that are distinctive from the people who make the strategic decisions for the company. How do we justify that? We pretend that the separateness of the company is so real that we criminally prosecute a company. They plead to things for which a person would go to jail, but you can't put a company in one, so let's just settle for that. Now what? Well, some of those questions will be explored in our next episode. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Rebel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on Outside Council are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Council. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon. On the next episode of Outside Counsel, we'll explore the concept and the law of public nuisance and their relationship to the conduct of prescription opioid manufacturers and opioid drugs 
and the opioid epidemic.